You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employer's respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just 348 With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis Media. Jimi Hendrix was born on the 27th day of November, and he lived a life of risks that would sometimes pay off and other times land him in hot water. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. 11 would be the number of hours he'd spend most days playing a guitar, whether on stage, in the studio, in his bed, or just lounging about. Seven more would be the number of days that passed between when he first landed in London and when he upstaged God himself at God's own show, and God would later describe his upsetter as Buddy Guy on acid. Another seven would be the number of English cops that harassed him on the street for what he was wearing and for the white girl on his arm. God may have dominion over the stage, but on the streets of London, Jimmy was on his own. And two more would be the number of years he'd have to live after two women stopped him in traffic in Chicago to ask if they could plaster cast his Hampton wick, all totaling 27. On this, our sixth episode of season one, upstaging God, plaster casted Hampton wicks, harassment on the streets of London, and the always searching Jimi Hendrix. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. Eric Clapton was searching for a light 
He stood against the wall at the back of the room at Regent Street Polytechnic in London, away from the crowd. His unlit cigarette dangled from his lower lip, and the matchbook in his hand was all stubs and no matchheads. He looked at his hand holding the matchbook, and it was shaking. He dug around in his jean pockets, nothing, and the cigarette hung there precariously, clinging to the last bits of spit on his dry lips. He was sweating, heart pounding, wheels burning rubber inside his head, crestfallen. What the hell was that? What did he just see? Chaz Chandler casually walked up next to Eric Clapton, dwarfing him with his big frame. Everything all right, mate? Chaz asked. Clapton held up the empty matchbook. Words escaped him at this moment. Ah, Chaz noted, and handed Clapton a matchbook from inside his jacket pocket. And Clapton plucked a match impulsively with one hand and held the matchbook with the other. His hands continued to shake as he ran the match against the black strip on the matchbook. He couldn't get purchase, tried again with another match, this time catching a corner of the black strip. Still nothing. God damn it. Just wanted a fucking smoke. Okay there, Eric? Chaz asked again, taking back the matchbook and lighting Clapton's cigarette for him. Clapton took a long drag, long enough that it gave him a moment to collect himself and speak like an actual human being again. He stuck his hand in the jungle of his thick mutton chop and scratched. He exhaled. Is he really that good, Chaz? Then he tried to piece together what he had just seen. He had been on stage at the Polytechnic with his new band, Cream. Eric Clapton with his gold top Les Paul hanging like a brick at his waist. Jack Bruce on bass guitar and Ginger Baker on drums. Jack and Ginger. It sounded like a classic cocktail, but they looked like a post-war biker gang in search of your girlfriend's finest drugs. The papers called them a supergroup, a power trio, the cream. The trio closed their first set with I feel free, and were ready to break when Clapton noticed Chaz at the edge of the stage. He motioned Clapton over. Chaz had brought this guy Jimmy over from the States. He promised he would introduce him to Eric. He'd been in London and was getting antsy. He was a big fan. He was the real deal. He had his guitar with him there at the gig. Could he jump on stage for a minute, jam on a tune or two? Cream were the hottest thing in London. Eric Clapton was God. Nobody asked to jam with Cream, especially not in the middle of their set at the Polytechnic. The balls on this kid. But Chaz was a friend, and Clapton thought, what the hell? It's not every day you get the opportunity to have your set interrupted by some American stranger who just flew into London from New York City, so why not? Jimi Hendrix walked on stage, strat in hand, straight for Eric Clapton, arm outstretched. As they shook hands, Clapton felt something hot and electric surge through him. It shot out of Jimmy's hand into Clapton's, sprang up his arm, wrapped serpentine heat around his bicep. In a bright burst of light, Clapton's time with the Yardbirds and the Bluesbreakers flashed before his eyes. His hand went numb. The next thing Clapton knew, Jimmy was plugged into the second input on Jack's bass amp, and he was calling out Killing Floor to the band. Clapton knew it, of course. Killing Floor. Howling Wolf. I know, I got it. And then Jimmy started playing. His left hand a blur, his right hand sliding all over the guitar's neck. The song's tempo was lightning fast. It was far more chaotic than anything Cream played. Jack and Ginger were galloping to keep up with the breakneck pace. And the room went dark. Jimmy radiated light. Clapton went cold. Jimmy radiated heat. Clapton stood still. Jimmy was all movement. Slow-mo pelvic thrust, dramatic knee bend. 
his left arm drawn up high in the air and hovering to mimic the sustained note he held with his right hand. He held the note within an inch of its life, but when it was about to die out, he bent it up, made it squeal some more. His guitar, it was all pleasure, it was pain, it was a piece of him, it coursed with blood, pumped directly from his own heart. Eric Clapton stood rigid, eyes darting around behind closed eyelids, lips pursed tight, body completely disengaged from the movement in his hands. He tried to keep pace, his hands seized up, he was terrified, he was hexed, maybe he was both. I should have quit you long time ago. Clapton stepped down from the stage while Jimmy continued to wail away with two-thirds of cream fighting to hang in there with him. Chaz Chandler had delivered on his promise to hold court with Eric Clapton. A week earlier, on September 23, 1966, Jimmy sat in first class on a Pan Am flight. He was going to London for an indeterminate amount of time. He packed light, his guitar, an extra pair of clothes, some face cream. Within hours of landing in London, he would be jamming at Chaz's friends' apartments and clubs in the city. Within the first few days, he would meet Kathy Etchingham, a writer, DJ, and hairdresser who would become his first girlfriend in London and one of his longest-term relationships. Within that first week, he'd jam Eric Clapton right off the stage. Chaz couldn't have made it happen, though, without Michael Jeffrey. The ying to his yang, the short to his tall, the cockney to his Geordie. The two would co-manage Jimmy. Jeffrey had been managing the animals already. He was the perfect amount of shady to ensure getting any upstart musician off the starting blocks. He had connections with the right club circuit bookers in England to get Jimmy gigs without proper documentation. Jeffrey's background in British intelligence allowed him to pull some strings and get Jimmy a travel visa to England within a moment's notice. They greased some palms, forged some documents, told some lies, negotiated with immigration staff for hours. Jimi Hendrix was a famous musician, see? He had unpaid royalties to collect. Yeah, that's it. Boom, passport stamped, ticket issued, seat found, buckle strapped, fate sealed. They were gonna make Jimi Hendrix the biggest thing the rock world had ever seen. They'd get people to notice. He'd stand out. You couldn't miss him. Jimi Hendrix, he couldn't miss. Jimmy and Kathy Etchingham were trying to find their way home on the streets of London on a blustery December evening when the blue lights came on. And then the siren, like an accordion cut into the otherwise silent night. Hee-haw, hee-haw. English cop sirens. They sounded like Georgia mules on the wrong side of the whip. Jimmy and Kathy stopped. Kathy panicked. Jimmy stood still and silent and rested his hand gently on Kathy's arm. Nothing was fucked. They hadn't done anything wrong. The cops saw a black man walking down a street at night with a white woman, and they just couldn't resist. Surely that was it. Honestly, the fact that it hadn't happened yet here in England had surprised Jimmy. He had been singled out and harassed so many times in the States. 
He'd stay calm like he always did. He'd smile, be polite. Yes, sir. No, sir. He had this. Seven police officers climbed out of the police wagon that had pulled over in front of where they were walking. Seven. Bobby helmets, chin straps, deep blue and white. That's British, isn't it? One of the cops hollered at Jimmy as they made their approach. Boy, a jacket, it's British. Jimmy and Kathy had been walking back from Little Richard's hotel room of all places. Little Richard was in town for a show and Jimmy thought he'd drop in, surprise him. And more importantly, get the 50 bucks that Richard owed him. Richard was happy to see him, but he wasn't giving Jimmy any money. He forfeited that money fair and square when he missed the tour bus. Have a nice fucking life, Jimmy Hendricks. Jimmy looked at his jacket while the seven cops stood waiting for an answer. It was a Hussar's military jacket, late 1800s, black with tasseled gold rope and knots on the sleeves, a relic of the British Empire. It was a dress jacket for the Royal Vet Corps, the guys who looked after the Queen's dogs and horses. He had bought it at a thrift store called I Was Lord Kitchener's Valet on Portobello Road. It was just the sort of far-out fashion statement he wanted to make as he was breaking onto the London scene. He wasn't like anyone else. He played guitar like no one else. He dressed like no one else. The Beatles were inspired to dress in similar fashion the following year when they conceived of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and Michael Jackson would take it to an oddly fascist extreme in the 1980s. Jimmy was expecting his jacket to draw attention, but not this kind of attention. He looked back up and responded calmly, Yeah, it's British. You're not supposed to wear that jacket. Men fought and died wearing that uniform. Our soldiers died in that uniform. Hold up, maybe this wasn't about what he thought it was about. What? Jimmy responded laughing. Men died in the vet corps hanging with dogs and donkeys? Shit, he was trying to lighten the tone, but the cops took offense. Was he talking back, mouthing off? There it was, the white cop, black kid interaction he had been expecting. They demanded to see his passport. They had him repeat himself, speak in his American accent, prove that he was who he said he was. He told him he was in a band, the Jimi Hendrix Experience, maybe they'd heard of them. And they were about to release their first single, Hey Joe. He explained that he had served in the U.S. Army himself, that he respected uniforms, that he really wasn't trying to take the piss, but it was a funky jacket. And it was a great contrast with the brighter colors he wore with it. It made him stand out. People noticed. None of it mattered. If some smart-ass American thought he could walk the streets of London at night wearing that jacket, he was sorely mistaken. The cops wouldn't leave until Jimmy took the jacket off. They wanted to see him take it off and walk away with it draped over his arm. And if they caught him wearing it again, they'd arrest him on the spot. So Jimmy took the jacket off, draped it over one arm, and took Kathy's in the other. You're in the experience, are you? One of the cops asked as they made their way back to the wagon. Well, what are you experiencing right now? Harassment. Jimmy mumbled as he walked away, Kathy by his side. Jimi Hendrix's fashion sense upon arriving in London was meant to draw as much attention as his music. He crossed the Atlantic in that Pan Am airplane and became a newly liberated man. Who was Jimi Hendrix? Who did he want to be? What did he want to sound like? What did he want to look like? No one was going to tell him how to play, how to dress, how to carry on. He came crashing into London's orbit like a comet, an asteroid, some cosmic object that was hot and unexpected and generally disruptive. He wore capes, he wore scarves, frilly white silk shirts, pink silk pants, red velvet pants, paisley waistcoats lined with sheepskin, western hats, kimonos, beads, clashing prints. His bandmates in the experience, bassist Noel Redding and drummer Mitch Mitchell, followed suit, 
They walked the walk, talked the talk. Their wardrobes were similar to Jimmy's. Their big hair mimicked Jimmy's expansive mane. Noel grew his fro naturally. They had to give Mitch a perm to match. And there was a uniform quality and a balance to their freaky appearance. Two white guys flanking their black band leader. Hair everywhere, top bright colors, tactile fabrics, and swinging London style. Jimmy and Chaz formed the experience within weeks of Jimmy's arrival in London. Auditions were fast and swift. Noel showed up to audition as a guitar player in The Animals after reading an advertisement in the paper. He had played guitar for The Loving Kind, a mod band from Kent with a few singles on Piccadilly Records. And the Animals slot was already filled. Chaz asked if he could play bass though. Noel said no, but he'd give it a shot. Hired. Mitch was a former child actor and had made a name for himself as a wild yet rhythmic drummer in his teens. He had previously auditioned for The Who, but was beat out by Keith Moon, who incidentally shared his elastic style. He was picked up by Georgie Fame in the Blue Flames, where he kept his wilder tendencies buttoned up for the group's starred shirt rhythm and blues. Mitch had just left Georgie's group when Chaz brought him in to audition. He and Jimmy banged around on some Chuck Berry tunes and the chemistry was immediate. Mitch was only 20 years old, hired. Their first practice sessions were loud. Henry Mancini was next door at one of their early rehearsals. He stopped by and asked him to turn it way the fuck down. And the Jimi Hendrix experience were coming in hot. Shortly before the experience even formed, Chaz had Jimmy sit in to jam with Brian Auger in the Trinity at the club in the basement of the Imperial Hotel. In the audience was Johnny Halliday, Paris's answer to Elvis Presley. French crowds lost their shit for Johnny the way American girls did for Elvis. He loved all things American. He loved to tell the story of how his first record was smashed by an unimpressed French DJ on the air. In the mid-60s, after becoming a bona fide superstar, Johnny joined the French army, attempted suicide, and rebounded with a band that featured Mick Jones. Not the Mick Jones who would go on to form The Clash, but the Mick Jones who would go on to form Foreigner, AKA Mark Ronson's stepdad. Halliday wanted Jimmy on his upcoming tour, whatever it took. Jimmy could do his own thing, play his own thing, wear his own thing. And the best part of it all, it was a tour of France. No work permits were needed. Jimmy could do whatever he wanted on that stage. He had barely jumped the pond over to the other side of the world and already life had pulled a giant 180. He was being offered the very things he was never offered in America. Attention, support, and complete artistic freedom. That got Jimmy thinking. What could he do that would really turn heads? Really make people notice? Something that had never been done before. Something red hot. Something combustible. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds, it was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. 
Welcome, Allison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's like very of all slow. The, of all the options. In spite of me. <laughs> like, what did we do? It's so slow. Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Allison. Thank you. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. The first match didn't take. The second fizzled out faster than the first. And the third match, the third match was the charm. Jimi Hendrix lit the third match with a quick flick of the wrist and tossed it onto his strat. Lying prone on the stage and the thing just lit up. The flame shot up four feet into the air above his sacrificial strat. Jimmy's eyes lit up too. A smile erupted on his face from ear to ear. He was on his knees, he could feel the heat coming from the guitar heard the protest it made through the amplifier behind him. The flames licked his hands and his face, reflected red and orange in his wide eyes. The flames scorched his hands. He could smell the burnt hair, the singed flesh. He felt the sweat linger on his cheeks. He coaxed the flames, teased them, held his hands out, palms up, and wiggled his fingers. He was a snake charmer, and this was the deadly thing in the basket that only he could talk to. This was his religious experience, the fiery church of the experience. The crowd stared, silent, unsure how to react. Some thought of finding the nearest exit before the whole place went up in flames. Some were paralyzed by curiosity. Some saw the same master that Jimmy saw in the tall red licks of the flame. That thing that called to them, that thing that made their hearts beat faster, made their bellies rumble, that thing that made their minds race with thoughts of sex and debauchery, that thing we call rock and roll. And Jimmy picked up the guitar by the whammy bar to swing it around in the air only to have a stagehand dash out from backstage to dump water all over it. The guitar had only been on fire for less than a minute, but the impression it would leave would last forever. Standing in the wings of the stage at the Finsbury Park Astoria were Scott Walker and the Walker brothers, Engelbert Humperdinck and Cat Stevens, and they all looked on, dumbstruck, confused, angry. Dressed in bland, solid colors, proper dinner jackets and short hair, They looked as though they had stepped out of a dressing room and onto the wrong stage. 
who was booking these tours, Brian Wilson's right ear. This package tour of English cinema houses was one of the first that the experience were added to, and it would be the first of many strange pairings they'd encounter. Strange, perhaps, because the Jimi Hendrix experience was so unlike anything else touring in early 1967. Even so, this was a messed up tour. The Walker brothers were known for Phil Spector-esque melodramatic songs like The Sun Ain't Gonna Shine Anymore, Turtlenecks and Burt Bacharach Hal David covers. Humperdinck was just getting started as a schmaltzy maestro. His ballad, Release Me, was currently preventing the Beatles' Penny Lane, Strawberry Fields Forever from reaching number one on the UK charts. Likewise, Cat Stevens was new on the scene and his folk rock song, Matthew and Son, was charting as well. They sent Stevens on the tour with a cowboy hat and a gun so that he could inhabit the character in his latest single, I'm Gonna Get Me a Gun. Lame-o, all around. Keith Altham's review of the March 1967 Astoria show on the New Music Express compared Engelbert following the Jimi Hendrix experience to Dr. Jekyll following Mr. Hyde. Just imagine going to a Walker Brothers tour, only to witness this dude in a frilly orange shirt, bright orange pants, silk ascot, and burgeoning afro set his guitar ablaze, and then expect some crooners and tuxedos and turtlenecks to follow. Unreal. Jimmy had doused his guitar with lighter fluid backstage before his set. He was plotting with Chaz and with Altham, who was hanging around the dressing room. What could he do that would amaze, that would shock? And Pete Townsend had been smashing his guitars with the Who for a spell, and that was a played-out trick. Jimmy needed something different. He wasn't like anyone else, not even like Pete Townsend. Altham had an idea. If only Jimmy could actually set his guitar on fire while he was playing the song Fire. And they sent someone for lighter fluid. Jimmy didn't pull anything so incendiary when he opened for Johnny Halliday on a brief French tour in October of 1966. He did give the audiences plenty of that added value sideshow stick, though, playing the guitar with his teeth behind his head, throwing the strap from one shoulder to the other, flipping his hand upside down and running it up and down the guitar neck with wildly suggestive strokes. And the French crowd saw in Jimmy the same thing that Johnny Halliday saw in Jimmy, and they ate it up. At a now legendary show at the Paris Olympia, the last tour date the experience would play with Halliday, the French crowd went bananas for Jimmy. The oddball pairings worked. They played a typical set for the time that included Hey Joe as well as Wilson Pickett's Land of a Thousand Dances, Otis Redding's Respect, and Don Covey's Mercy Mercy. In audio of the Olympia show, Jimmy's guitar whinnies and whines, dive bombs and moans. Yeah, dig this right here, he says before launching into a feral reading of the Trog's Wild Thing. It ends and the crowd erupts, and they didn't need fire to get the crowd's attention. In the next year, Halliday covered Jimmy's version of Hey Joe in French. It peaked at number two on the charts in Wallonia. And Jimmy was still searching for the right fit, but even the most bizarre pair-ups were bearing fruit. Crowds were digging him, ticket sales were increasing, other musicians were watching in awe and fear. As Jeff Beck said, Jimmy upset the apple cart in swinging London. Once he had their attention, he began to dominate the UK scene. So much so that many Americans didn't even realize that Jimmy was from the States. And the experience struck gold with their first three UK singles, Hey Joe, Purple Haze, and The Wind Cries Mary. Their debut album, Are You Experienced, was released in May 1967 in the UK. It peaked at number two and spent 33 weeks on the charts there. 
When it was released in the US in August, it reached number five on the Billboard 200 and stayed on the charts for a whopping 106 weeks. Next up, Jimmy would return to the US and look for a similar response there. Paul McCartney would recommend him for the Monterey Pop Festival, where he'd set his guitar on fire again. But this time, there would be a film crew there, and it would instantly become legend. America, a place that Jimmy could triumphantly return to as a fantastical Technicolor version of the same person who had left less than a year before. Strange, flamboyant, loud, high, not necessarily stoned, but beautiful. He could be paired with anyone, but rarely fit with anyone. The offers in the U.S. would start to pour in to play this show, to meet that person, to take this photo, to jam with this band. And some offers, some of the most memorable, would shamelessly be hollered out of a car window in the middle of a Sunday afternoon in crosstown traffic. Jimi Hendrix was staring out of the window from the back of a long black limousine. They were stuck in traffic on Michigan Avenue. Jimmy couldn't believe what he just heard. He'd been approached by strangers many times before for the way he dressed, for the way he played, for the way his name rang out and the way his myth was quickly spreading, but never for something like this. Sitting in traffic in the middle of Chicago on a cold day in February, being yelled at by some young woman with long black hair and bangs, being yelled at about his cock. He nudged Noel sitting next to him and got Mitch's attention as well, nodded his head towards the window. The trio turned their heads. A huge smile took over Jimmy's entire face. A woman was hanging out of the window, the car next to them, dangling a suitcase in one hand over the middle of Michigan Avenue. The suitcase read, Plaster Casters of Chicago. She repeated what Jimmy had thought he'd heard, and this time with his bandmates looking on. He believed his ears. We want to plaster cast your Hampton wick, she shouted it in a fake Cockney accent that was betrayed by her thick Chicago tongue. Her breath hung in the cold February air outside her open window like it was her scandalizing offer itself. Bated breath come to life, and Jimmy blushed. Noel and Mitch laughed, and Noel whacked Jimmy on the arm at the absurdity of it all. Jimmy was intrigued, always intrigued. Car horns blared all around them. Jimmy waved them on to follow behind as traffic broke up and the limo started to move forward. In the experience, we're headed back to the Hilton in Chicago after playing an afternoon show at the Civic Opera House, one of the two shows scheduled for that day on their jam-packed American tour. They had hours to kill before they had to be back on stage, and there was plenty of time for distractions. And as usual, Jimi Hendrix didn't have to search for distraction. Distraction found it. At the hotel, both cars pulled up to the valet area. The woman with the long black hair and the suitcase introduced herself as Cynthia Plastercaster, a 20-year-old artist and leader of the Wick Dipping Gang. Their mission was to make plaster casts of as much rock star dick as they could get their hands on. Only problem was they hadn't met any real rock stars yet. And Jimmy laughed and then offered to be their first. Noel immediately chimed in, he'd go second. Mitch wasn't sure what to make of the whole ordeal. Plaster on his dick, a mold of his junk, he'd be the voice of reason for that day and politely decline. 
Inside the hotel room, the crew got down to business. Cynthia got to work on the plaster in the bathroom. One of the other plaster casters got to work on Jimmy's cock. She had him pull off his jeans and sit on the edge of the bed, and then she went to town, got him so hard he was ready to burst. And Cynthia placed a martini shaker filled with dental mold gel around his unit and told him to hold it there for a minute so the plaster could dry. A minute later, it was dry and his dick was stuck. And Jimmy grabbed hold of the martini shaker and started to hump it. And the door to the hotel room opened and the experienced tour manager stuck his head in with Jimmy boning a martini shaker on the bed. Noel was getting his plaster cast set on the next bed, a room full of half-naked dudes being assisted by women with wet plaster on their hands. And the tour manager took one look, panned his head from one end of the room to the other and made no reaction. Just another Sunday. Jimmy, it's almost time to get back to the opera house. The show, it must go on. Get your dick out of that martini shaker and let's go. The plaster casters put Jimmy's plaster cast penis on a public display at an art show. Jimmy gave his blessing. Alongside casts of the MC5's Wayne Kramer and the young rascal's Eddie Brigatti, Jimmy's was not only the first cast, but the most famous. The plaster casters always insisted it was one of the largest molds they'd ever made. One of the newspapers dubbed it the penis de Milo. And the women, women everywhere. Women loved Jimi Hendrix, and Jimi Hendrix loved them right back. They'd show up at his hotel room, knock on his door, approach him before shows, after shows, make eyes at him during shows, make offers in the middle of Michigan Avenue to plaster cast his penis. They would buy him guitars, feed him, give him a place to crash, give him love, and let him love them back. And they were the muses for his art, the wind whispered, Mary, fly on, little wing. Jimmy answered every knock at the door and let everyone into his world. Kathy, Devin, Linda, Kirsten, Eva. Jimmy's relationship with each girlfriend would have a profound effect on him as he continued to play, tour, record, and continue to search for who exactly he was and who he was supposed to be. Some women, like Colette Mimran, would be his guide on journeys of self-discovery in exotic locales like Morocco. He let all that fame baggage drop to the ground, blend in with the crowds, and try to feel free. All that free time to think and feel and just be would prove to be a little too much. Too much free time. His mind would race. He would silently panic. The fear of death would start to creep into his brain, nestle into his bones. He would see things, mirages in the desert, mirages in his mind, dead people. In Morocco, he pushed his mind so far to the limit that he'd see Brian Jones, guitarist from the Rolling Stones, but the thing was, Brian had been dead for weeks. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. The 27 Club is scored and co-written by me, Jake Brennan. Zeth Lundy is the lead writer, editor, and co-producer. The 27 Club is mixed and engineered by Sean Cahalan and Matt Bowden, both of whom lent their considerable music talent to the scoring of this series as well. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker. The 27 Club is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the 27 Club series page. The 27 Club is released weekly every Thursday. Season 1 features 12 episodes on Jimi Hendrix, and Season 2 will feature 12 episodes on Jim Morrison. 
If you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to The 27 Club on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to win a free 27 Club poster designed by the man himself, Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for 27 Club on Apple Podcasts or hashtag subscribe to 27 Club on social media, and we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. You're going to want to give that a follow. So get out there and please spread the word about the 27 Club. As always, you can find me blabbing about other crazy rock stars on my other podcast, Disgraceland. And you can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter, at DisgracelandPod. One way or another, I hope to be talking to you soon. Until then. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscore team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me, like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for.